and then we'll go ahead and I'll read through the verses and then we'll go over the text. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. All right. So last week, everyone endured the genealogy um, from Adam through Seth. And then we come to, okay, what, what's been happening in the world while all of these generations have been happening? What happened with the Cain generation and with the Seth uh, generation and genealogies? What else is going on behind the scenes? What are we seeing in the actual world with all of these people who are now populating the world? Um, as it turns out, in today's text, we find out. We find out that it hasn't been all good. Um, while they have done what they were supposed to do in the cultural mandate, which is creativity, which is subduing the earth, there's something drastically wrong. So it's with this that we continue on with today's text. Um, and in advance, this is probably, out of all of Genesis, one of the most debated eight verses in Genesis. So I'll let you decide for yourselves as we go forward. But uh, verse 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So Genesis 6 begins with a brief statement on the continued blessing bestowed upon humanity. As you remember, to procreate is a blessing given to the first couple, Adam and Eve. And as we've seen thus far in Genesis, it continues through their progeny. Thus, we see that man, that is all of humanity, began to spread out over the face of the land. In the previous chapter, the sons were the focus. Now, however, the daughters are the focus. The fact that humanity continued to bear children after their kind is significant and a reminder of God's, again, blessing on humanity despite the fall. Now, it's at this point, the text becomes, again, one of the most controversial, discussed, debated in the Old Testament and some would say, even in the entirety of the scriptures, we notice that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. The debate around this statement is profound. As the question we must ask is, what does the text mean when it says the sons of God? The oldest interpretation of the sons of God represents spiritual beings. They could be angels, demons, spirits, or even members of the divine council. As such, these spiritual beings saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and as such, they came down and they married them. This is plausible since the term sons of God is elsewhere used in scripture to define such spiritual entities. 
Now, the second interpretation views the sons of God as ancient rulers. In support of this view is the fact that in the ancient Near East, rulers were often dubbed sons of God. Thus, these rulers were like acting like Lamech in the Cain genealogy. As we remember, Lamech, or Lamech was the first known polygamist, for example. Now we see that this kind of behavior ran rampant, assuming that they took as their wives any that they chose means they took many wives, thus beginning the harem mentality that we see in the Middle East and elsewhere even today. Now the third interpretation looks at the sons of God as the Sethites. Um, Thus the righteous line of Seth being marrying into other bloodlines, especially those of Cain. In this way, they were polluting themselves with a people who were far from God. This view also works since the term for the nation of Israel is God's son. They are the son of God. Thus, it is possible that this term is also used for Seth's line as the righteous ones. Still, a final interpretation may be a mixture of the spiritual interpretation and the ruler interpretation. It is possible that these sons of God were spiritual beings who possessed men once um, they saw the daughters of men. And assuming humanity had become truly dark, such an interpretation may be applicable because that would imply that these uh, possessed individuals were doing it purposefully and allowing themselves to become possessed for power. One of the arguments against the spiritual understanding is that only humanity is judged. If angels were marrying human women, why is all humanity judged? Now, some argue that it may be because humanity as a whole was still seeking to regain what was lost in the garden. Thus, they believed in marrying their daughters to angels, they could gain eternal life. Yet, as we will find shortly, this is not the case. Likewise, it has been argued that in the New Testament, Jesus claims angels do not marry. How is it then that these spiritual beings would marry humans? This can be alleviated, however, if we recognize that while angels certainly do not marry, demons might. Ultimately, there is truly no consensus of any of these interpretations. They all fit in some way or another, and as of right now, there doesn't seem to be any um, concluding remarks or anything that any of us can say, okay, this is definitely the interpretation. It's all up in the air. Um, So that's why I said, you choose for yourself, it won't matter (laughs) in the end of what happens in the end, um, in the next few verses. All right, now we continue on. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right, so these two verses continue the trend of debate. The first verse deals with God's response to humanity. The fact that his spirit would not remain with man forever reflects the breath of life which he had given humanity once humanity was formed. As such, God will now not allow this life to continue forever. Humanity, while having a soul, is still flesh. This then leads to the question, what does it mean when God limits man to 120 years? There are two interpretations. The first is 120 years acts as a countdown until the coming of the flood. This is plausible since we know at this point Noah was around 500 years old 
and the flood comes around when he is 600 years old. Thus, it is plausible that this acts as a moment when God uh, could be gracious to humanity, giving time for repentance, which he knows will not come. The second thought is that 120 years represents the maximum years a person will now live. The problem with this is that after the flood, we still have individuals living well past 120 years, um, actually for a few generations after that. Granted, the ages begin to drop as time progresses, and about the time of the patriarchs, Aaron lives to be the longest at over 120 years, while Moses lives to be 120 years exactly. So it is possible that God just simply slowly brought their lives down to a normal, what we would consider a normal level. Unfortunately, scholars are divided (laughs) on the issue, and there doesn't seem to be any indication of a change in the debate forthcoming. As soon as someone discovers something, I'll let you know. Um, But as of right now, it's up to your interpretation. We then come to the third debated part of these texts, and that concerns the Nephilim. This term denotes usually giants. The question scholars ask, however, is what is being said about them? Are the Nephilim to be described as the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men? Or are Nephilim a different group altogether from both? Now, the problem is both seem plausible. If they are a separate group, then this is only to describe the time frame of the men and of renown who were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. If, however, the Nephilim are the same as the mighty men, then that would imply that whatever relationships the sons of God had with the daughters of men were then giants. The only thing to notice, though, is that even if this is true, uh, the offspring are still human despite their renown and might. So it doesn't matter. Even if the Nephilim were descendants of the, these false deities, um, these spiritual beings and humans, in the end, they're still mortal. They're not gods. Now, which interpretation is best is, again, still debated. And like the other debates, there doesn't seem to be much consensus currently. I am sorry. I can't give you anything else. It's just a debated thing. My opinion about all of it, I would say spiritual beings slash rulers, that that combination view. In regards to this, I would say I lean 49.51. (laughs) I lean toward them being two distinct groups as a way of just describing it. Um, just the way that the text describes it. Um, all right, so verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now we get to legit things that we can actually talk about without having debate. Um, the text now deals with the problem of mankind. If the above marriages were between humans and spiritual beings, then it is possible that the unity which was occurring were welcomed by mankind is again a way of hopeful gaining of immortality. As such, these verses remind us that such attempts are vain. Yet at the same time, it may simply represent the total understanding of humanity. All of humanity was wickedness. Not only were their actions wicked, but also their intentions were wicked. Their thoughts, their hearts, their innermost desires were all focused on evil. It should also be noted how this verse reflects back onto Genesis 1 and 2. There we found how God saw all that he had created was very good. Now God sees that man's sinfulness is great all the time and is bad. 
It ultimately reminds us of the state of the human race after the fall. Though it is possible for humanity to stand firm against evil as Enoch had done, the truth is humanity as a whole shows its great depravity over the entire earth. Now we come to verses 6 through 8. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 6 deals with something most scholars find strange. Uh, Some translations use the word, instead of regret, repent. That God repented from making humanity. If this is the case, it may sound as though God is changing his mind, which some might find problematic. Ultimately, though, whenever the scriptures describe God as repenting, it is usually in response and action uh, to human response, such as we saw in Joel. Thus, God sees that man has done, and it causes him regret. The text specifically details it as uh, grieving him in the heart. It isn't merely a sorrow, it is as much righteous anger As it is sorrow. A recognition of seeing that which was meant to be so good is now so evil. So the Lord decides that he will blot out man and land animals. The term blotting out would give us an indication of what it is about to occur. As it is reminiscent of a dish uh, being cleaned with water. So it is with the land. The destruction of the human race is about to commence. Yet, there is still hope. For while the words show the great anger and anguish in God um, and what he is experiencing in his creation, as well as the upcoming disaster, there is still a man who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Another word for favor is simply this, grace. And as one commentator notes, the way that Noah finds grace or favor is similar to that of Moses. Thus, Noah is seen as to be on par with Moses when it comes to significance in the Genesis text. All right. So the main point, despite all these debated and all these discussions and and speculations, the main point of these verses, though, are to describe the state of the world prior to the flood. Humanity continued to be tainted by sin, and not only tainted, but fully immersed in it. Because of this, God decides that he will righteously judge those who are so deeply entrenched in sin. Yet despite this, there is still hope, as Noah is mentioned as finding favor, or again grace, in God's eyes. Alright, I have one application point from all this, which might depress some, because again, I'm not going to get into the discussion, David, about all that stuff. You decide for yourself. Uh, what all that stuff means. Instead, I want to focus on that main point, the state of humanity at this point. Um, So in today's text, we see the ramifications of the fall in full effect. Uh, The human race as a whole has at this point in Genesis fallen far beyond where God had first made them. Being made in his image to enjoy him in obedience uh, to him forever to this moment where God has pain in his heart for even creating humanity to begin with. As it is, what we find in these verses today are a reflection of what we find in ourselves apart from God. For it is here 
in the midst of the sorrow and sins of this generation, that we find humanity at its worst in all of its broken relationships. First, in the broken relationship with God and living in disobedience to him. Second, in broken relationships to one another and the dominion of others and the domination of others. And third, in the broken relationship with the world in which the very clear boundaries set by God at creation, his design, it's being tested and even broken. Yet all of these broken things stem from a society of people who have no interest in God. The pre-flood generation are individuals who did not desire to know God or love God. They did not care for God, for his glory, for him at all. Instead, they were a generation who lived for self, growing in power and growing in their sins day after day. Is it so surprising that the end result of such a people was sin? I think not. For when a person desires to live as though God does not exist, and when that person becomes a group of people, and a culture, and a civilization, then all that will remain is darkness in that civilization. Thus, the way the text described these individuals is poignant. They were a people who only did evil, and only ever thought of evil even in their hearts all the time. Now the question we want to ask is, how is this relevant to us? Well, I think it is very relevant as we consider our own world and our own time which we live. For as we see, there are many who would seek to push God away from the table, so to speak. Within our culture, and many cultures in the West and throughout the world, to bring God to the table of discussion is to be ridiculed, it's to be ignored, it's to be called all sorts of interesting names. I have been called such names. Yet where does such a culture lead? Where does such a culture end up if God is really pushed away? All of this makes me think of all people, Frederick Nietzsche, um, and his parable of a madman. And I want to read to you real quick what Nietzsche says in his parable of the madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God! I seek God! As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? He cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward in all direction? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning. Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? 
Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet known has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground, and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars require time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem aeternum deo. Let out and called to account, he, sa- he is said always to have replied nothing but, what after are all these churches now if they are not tombs and sepulchres of God? And that was written in 1882, over a hundred years ago. Now I personally... F- always found this writing to be interesting. Nietzsche in it recognizes the repercussions of what it means for a world to exist without God. During his time, and even in his own work, many philosophers were trying to picture or imagine, even bring about a world in which God did not exist, and what that would mean for humanity. In this work, he recognizes that it would lead to a detachment with virtually everything in society, hence his symbolism of drinking up the sea or wiping away the horizon. Some believe it is this thought which made him believe that the century after his, that is the 19th century, would become the bloodiest century of all time because he saw it coming. Well, he was right. The 19th, 20th century was just that, a world in which more individuals died through warfare and genocide than any other in the history of man combined, the 20th century. But despite foreseeing this reality, Nietzsche held out hope. One of his famous ideas, out of chaos comes order. He believed that once we stripped away all these beliefs about God, and once we had this time of transformation, of chaos, of bloodiness, then in the end it would lead to a better world. Now the question that we all need to ask is, after 150 years of seeing what they've done, what the philosophers have done, and the scientists and the naturalists, the question is, has it really changed for the better? I think we can argue no. You see, these philosophers believe that the departure of God 
the cutting off of God would lead to a better world. But the truth is, it hasn't. The reason why is that once you cut off God from the world, then it naturally leads to everything Nietzsche predicted, a world unhinged. Now we see this in our own world today, especially when it comes to morality. Consider the question, is it possible for people to be good without believing in God? Is it possible? Personally, I would say, yes. It is possible for people to be good without believing in God. In fact, we see people who do not believe in God doing good things all the time. The atheist can save a cat in a tree. They'll do that, and they'll be nice. Or they'll build kennels for dogs. Or they'll um, come up with great ways to feed the homeless, things like that. Um, And even Jesus recognized that the pagans knew good things even without having God. But that's not the real question. The real question is not, can you do good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God? Or does good exist without God? If there is no God, then there is no foundation for objective moral values, for right and wrong, for good and for bad. As it is, we know what is good, righteous, just, loving, gracious, merciful, kind, because these are all part of God's own character. But what happens when God is taken out of the equation? Well, then that leads to subjective moral values. What does that mean? Well, when something is subjective, it means that it is based upon the subject's preference. A good example is cereal. I enjoy Frosted Flakes. They're delicious. You might enjoy Wheaties. I don't find it as delicious. Or Cocoa Krispies. You might find these more enjoyable. These things are subjective. We are the subject and we have our particular preference about them. When when morality is described as subjective, it means that we each have our own morality, our own way of defining what is good and bad and right and wrong kind of like cereal or ice cream. Now, this may sound nice at first, but think about where that leads. If everyone has their own subjective moral values of right and wrong, then that means that there can be no absolute standard for right and wrong. If there is no absolute standard, then there is no right and wrong. It means that your preference is just as valid as my preference. And if that is the case, then none of us can say that something is truly evil or good. For example, if morality is subjective, we cannot say that the Nazi regime was wrong and that the Holocaust was immoral. We can't say that. Nor can we say that the shootings in the U.S. these past few years were wrong and evil. We can't say that. Nor can we say that sex slave trade is wrong and evil. We can't say that. Why? Because if morality is subjective, then those who commit such acts have their own morality, and we have no right to say that their acts or their morality is wrong. But as it is, we do not say that morality is subjective. Instead, we recognize that morality is objective. We recognize morality has an absolute standard apart from us, and that it is found in God. 
It is through God's character we can know what is right and wrong, good and evil. Through his commands we learn what is morally good and right. For example, the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are moral commands that lead to moral duties, what we should do. Yet they all stem from the same place, God. He loves, therefore we should love. Likewise, this leads to us being able to condemn what is evil by what does not reflect that command. So if we hate our neighbor, if we cheat them, rob them, or speak ill of them, discriminate against them, then we know that such acts are evil because they do not reflect loving one's neighbor. If God, however, is taken out of the question or or equation, then again, there is no moral duties or moral standards. Does this fit with our experience? I would argue no. Simply put, if we see an event occur which is evil, we instinctually know it is evil. When we see injustice and we say, this is an injustice, we make a bold declaration that there are objective moral duties and values. So how does this relate to our text? Well, in our text, we learn that the people were in great sin. They were wicked. This terminology defines morality. They were not living in a way which was moral. Instead, they were living in ways which were immoral because we know that what is immoral is that which is against morality. And we know morality because we know God and his commandments. In our own society, we deal with the same thing. In our own society, we deal with individuals who do not have God, do not want God, and live however they will by their own standard. We who are of the faith cannot boast or look down upon them because in all truth, we were once part of them as well. We were once in the same sphere of influence which tells us that God does not exist, I can live however I want, and I can do whatever I want. But now that we are in Christ... We can know that we are like Noah. We have found favor in God's sight. We can live in a way which is in congruence with God's own moral character. We can love. We can be merciful, kind, gracious, and just. We can now because we have been redeemed by Christ because God has found favor with us despite our sin. I find it fascinating to consider Genesis so far and how it keeps on arguing for the existence of God repeatedly. I mean, if we consider it, Genesis 1, we learn that the universe has a beginning. We remember the argument was if the universe has a beginning, then the best explanation for that beginning is God. But we also learned how the universe is designed. And we see the design of the universe here and now and how everything needed to be set perfectly in order for life to exist in our universe. Now, we find another argument, another reason for the existence of God, and that is morality itself. For you see, the generation of Noah is not so different than our own. In fact, it is no different than our own. Because in the end, the generation of Noah merely shows us the reality of a people without God. Thus, any people without God will reflect the generation of Noah. It will reflect the evil found there. Because even if there is good, they do not glorify or praise the God who defines what good itself is. 
And instead, they take the glory which belongs to God for themselves, placing themselves above God, just as Adam and Eve had done in the garden. Ultimately, we are all sinners at heart, and each one of us needs a new heart that seeks to glorify God instead of self. So it is, Noah, his generation, is not so far from us, despite being thousands of years away. It is... As it is, we are like Noah in our own generation. But we will need to wait another week to find out what that means for us, as Noah's. Today, we reflect on the sorrow of humanity from then until now, and how we all share in the guilt, in the darkness, which is humanity outside of Eden. Indeed, a humanity seeking to live in a world as though God did not exist. And all of that, of course, leads us to the gospel. Um, Because in the gospel, we find the remedy. Not only do we find the remedy, but we also find the epitome of what is good. Jesus. He is what is good. We find the epitome of what it means to be a moral person in Jesus. And we find the answer to the problem of humanity from the time of Adam and Eve leaving the garden until now? And the answer is Jesus. And so in Genesis, we're blessed because we've discussed origins repeatedly. We see how the world came into existence. We see how God brought it all about, and we are thankful. And we praise God the same way that he saw the creation, and he saw humanity, and he said, this is good. I've made something wonderful. And we rejoice. Then we come to the fall. We come to not only Adam and Eve eating the fruit, but all humanity joining with them. And we see that repercussion through generation and generation and generation. We see people who in the end, in this text, seek only evil continually in their hearts. A people who are very much like us. And all of that is the result of the fall. Because we place ourselves above God. As though God does not exist. In our text, there's hope. But Noah found favor in God's sight. Noah found grace. In God's sight. As we continue with Genesis, we're going to find what that looks like. For us, as we come to Christ, we find what it means for us. That we are like Noah, finding grace in God's sight. Because now, we are not like the generation of Noah who is going to be doomed to destruction because of our sins. But we are redeemed through Jesus Christ. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have now the standard set before us. And not only that, but the standard lifts us up. It's kind of like, in life, we're in a pit. And out of our chest, there's a tulip sticking out. God comes down, gives us life, and then he raises us up all the way out of the pit through Jesus. 
It's not just that he gives us a ladder out of the pit. He gives us an elevator. (laughs) He gives us the complete way out through Jesus. And ultimately, where we are heading is glory. No matter what this world throws at us, the sorrow, the sin, the constant reminder of the fact that we are of that generation which deserves judgment, that each one of us deserves exactly what these people are about to get. Each one of us deserves that. But in Christ, we don't get it. In Christ, we get redemption. In Christ, we get deliverance from the flood. You have deliverance from the flood if you're in Christ. And that will lead into an eternal kingdom where we will celebrate and praise our God forevermore and his love and his grace. So don't forget where you're going. We may be joining these individuals in that generation, but we're like Noah. We have grace. And that will get us through the flood. Let us pray. Father, We thank you so much because you teach us and you remind us that a world without God is not a world worth living in. And Lord, we are reminded in today's text that apart from you and apart from your grace, there is no hope for humanity. There is no hope for any one of us. And so as we reflect on this, Lord, we thank you for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. And though we may fail and stumble and sink, your hand is strong enough always to reach down and lift us back up. And so, Lord, as we continue on, on this journey of faith, we ask, Lord, that you would never let us go. That we would trust your promises to not let us go. And that we would continue to remain faithful to your word every day of our life. We thank you. We thank you for all that you have done and all that you do and for all of who you are in your mystery and also in your glory. We praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.